you for reading for us. Do please keep that passage open and possibly a finger in at the Isaiah passage as well, page 693. That will be helpful for us, I think, in due course. And why don't I pray for us as we begin. Our loving Lord Jesus, you call us to follow. And so we pray that you would show us the light of your glory this morning. Help us to humble ourselves before your word and teach us that we might know what it is to follow you. Give us the, uh, the same heart as your disciples who uh, got up and followed. Uh, be with me as I speak, be with all of us working in our hearts that we might be the disciples you call us to be for your glory. Amen. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So said Richard Dawkins in his book, River Out of Eden. No purpose, no good or evil, no morality, no right or wrong. We're just the product of chance encounters. We are, uh, to quote his book, The Selfish Gene, we are machines created by our genes. We are no more special and uh, so no more valuable than my cauliflower over here. We're just a thing. No particular value. Dawkins is a scientist who dismisses the supernatural. He has no place for God for life after death, and he's not alone, is he? Secular materialism, which is uh, the philosophy for which he has been the poster boy for some decades now, uh, dominates in the academy, in the media, in the arts, uh, in parliament. But notice what is implied in Richard Dawkins' words. There is no purpose, no point to you and I. No inherent value. There is no right and wrong. We're we're of no uh, distinguishable value from the animals. We're nothing special. The secular uh, materialist uh, theory is very neat. It's popular because it says there is no God and so there's no interference. Nobody to tell you that life should be like this and not like that. So do what you want. There's no right and wrong anyway. There is no God to speak to the purpose of life. There's no God to speak to the value of people. There's no God to tell you uh, what your ethics should be. So consider that the Harvard ethicist Peter Stringer, who has said, I can think of no moral objection to eating human roadkill. Or, more horrifyingly, and more recently, suppose you take the argument in favour of abortion up until the baby is one year old. If a baby was one year old and turned out to have some horrible incurable disease that meant it was going to die in agony in later life, what about infanticide? Strictly morally, I can see no objection to that at all. I would be in favour of infanticide. See, the secular materialist philosophy has no more reason to object to me smashing in your head with this hammer than me smashing in the head of this column with this hammer. That could be you. And Dawkins and Stringer have no reason 
To reject that, I'm going to have to do some hoovering afterwards, aren't I? <laughs> now, why have I begun this series this way? Because I want us to be very, very clear about the default beliefs of our culture. And they are our default beliefs. I remember very distinctly sitting in the pub a number of years ago with two Cambridge grads who said to me, as we tried to discuss some of these things, they said, if Richard Dawkins says it, it must be true. And that's the end of the conversation. No evidence, no rational interaction. It's simply accepted that if Richard Dawkins says it, it's true. Now, it's not strictly true anymore, ever since he's gone slightly mad and posted uh, comments on Twitter last year about how it was absolutely morally necessary to abort Down syndrome children. And that got uh, even the the Twitterati and, and the Guardian readers outraged. But I think what he said is completely consistent. If we are no more valuable than the cauliflower, then why would you bring somebody into the world who's going to be difficult for you? If life is just about what you want, why not? (coughs) Of course, Dawkins has therefore fallen from grace somewhat, but secular materialism is still the default religion of the day. It is the credible philosophy of the worldview that needs no justification. It is just accepted to be true. It is just assumed. I want us to be clear about the darkness we have entered, my friends. In the name of enlightenment, scientific thinking, we have entered an age of absolute moral pluralism. Do what you want, anything goes. Now, of course, some people have responded to this bleakness of secular materialism by turning to the occult. The occult is the the most rapidly rising religion of our day, on both sides of the Atlantic. The occultist believes there's something more than the material world. They're looking to uh, the spirits, to demons, to the deceased, to give them guidance. But not to God. Uh, They want to still be in charge. Pleasure is still king. And so to both groups, Christianity becomes immoral. We are immoral because in a world that says you can do what you want, that is the only absolute... For Christians to say, God has spoken on these things. And no, no, Peter Stringer, it's absolutely abhorrent that you would want to to kill children after birth. Because their lives might be difficult. Well, that is an outrageous thing to say. And in this series, as we listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, from time to time he's going to say things that are absolutely outrageous in our culture. He's going to say things... Uh, that uh, speak to our uh, age of moral pluralism very abruptly. He's going to say there is one way to live. There is the kingdom way to live. That's the only way to live, and you've got to do it. Christians, this is how you're expected to live. Now, we might look around at our culture, at its dominant anti-Christian philosophy and the rise of the occult, and think that holding on to Jesus' teaching today feels very out of touch. It feels like we're descending back into the Dark Ages. We might think that it was easier in Jesus' day to follow Jesus' teaching. And if that is our concern, we are greatly blessed this morning to be looking at Matthew 4, 12 to 25. This is the beginning of a new section that runs, I think, probably through to the end of chapter 9 in Matthew, certainly to the end of chapter 7. 
And we're given two narratives that are sandwiched around the Sermon on the Mount that give us some context, help us to understand what Jesus is on about when he preaches for those three chapters. Verse 15, Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 9, telling us that Jesus has come to fulfil the word that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The people in darkness have seen a great light. But what is the darkness? What is the darkness that Jesus has come to be the light to? Let's just flip back to, to Isaiah chapter 8 that Shana read for us earlier. Page 693. Isaiah here is speaking to God's people, but they've turned from God. Verse 20. To the Lord and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light. The people have turned from the word of God. And so, instead, they turn to the occult. Verse 19, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? People have rejected the truth that God has spoken, so they've turned to the occult. Worse than that, they curse God, verse 21. At the end of verse 21, they curse their king and their gods. And then they look to the nations for wisdom. Then they look towards the earth and see any distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. See, the nations provided Israel with a challenge. Theirs was the accepted philosophy of the day. And God asked the Israelites to walk counter to the prevailing philosophy. The occultism, the ethics, the lifestyles of the day. God says, go my way, not their way. And God's people had turned their backs on God and tumbled into the darkness for seven centuries. As the nations then, so the secular materialists today. <clears throat> Christianity is not, and was not then, the socially acceptable option. But Isaiah is clear that all other options are darkness. Ignorant of God, ignorant of the way the world is, ignorant of truth. A spiritual and moral blindness that leads us to ruin. So back to Matthew 4 and verse 16. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. To live without Christ is to live in darkness. It is to live in the land of the shadow of death. And we intuitively know what that means, don't we? Imagine a mountain, a great mountain, and you live in the valley, and the great mountain obscures the sun and so casts a great shadow over the whole of life. That's what death is like for the human race, isn't it? It casts its long, dark shadow back over everything. Every illness, every injury, every broken relationship, every trauma, every psychological stress, every uh, death in the family... A constant, biting reminder that our own death draws ever nearer. And all the secular materialists can say is, that's just the way the world is and it doesn't mean anything. Uh, to the secular materialists looking on at the shootings in Oregon this week, all they can say is, that's just the way the world is. Survival of the fittest. And have nothing more to say. And nothing more comforting than that to say. Is that how we want to face the shadow of death? How are you going to live if everything is pointless? 
and your life is meaningless and the people you love don't matter at all. That is where we're going. That is where the secularist is taking us. And, of course, you could be a secular materialist and be intellectually dishonest and pretend that everything has value and meaning. But you would be being dishonest to yourself and others. And into this world, Jesus comes to cast out the darkness, to drive it back, to let us see the light again. He comes proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light and goodness has arrived. Well, let's see what that kingdom looks like. The kingdom of heaven has come near, verses 12 to 17. Verse 12 is a transition from the ministry of John the Baptist in the, in the previous chapter and a half. And now Jesus has arrived. John has been arrested and Jesus arrives on the scene. At verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Jesus moved away from the family home in Nazareth and went to Capernaum, that is Capernaum, literally the, the burial place of Nahum the prophet. It would be like going to live in Gravesend, or, or Tombstone, Arizona, or, or Murder Island, Nova Scotia. It would be like uh, the whole place, the very name of the town where you live, screams shadow of death. Because the, the prophet has been buried there. But Jesus isn't morbid, he is being deliberate. He goes, verse 14, in order to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. He goes to Zebulun and Naphtali, the northern tribes of Israel, because Isaiah has said so. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. Do you notice that? Just pause on that for a moment. How pagan had Zebulun and Naphtali become already in Isaiah's own day to be called Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the pagans? You people of God who've turned to darkness have become pagan, foreigners to God. And what does Jesus do? How does he fulfil? The people living in darkness, in paganism, and have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. Jesus comes and a people who'd spent seven centuries in ignorance of God have suddenly got light. What does the light do? The light comes as a contrast. You know what it's like. You go into a dark room, you turn the lights on, it drives the shadows away. It exposes everything that you couldn't see before. And it provides an alternative. A people who have chosen the darkness are being offered light. In particular, verse 17, notice, the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus arrives God's promised king has arrived, and so the kingdom of God's promised king has arrived. And so the people face a choice, light or darkness, God or the world. Chapter 5 will begin the Sermon on the Mount proper next week. But Matthew wants us to be clear, before we get there, what it means to enter the kingdom. Jesus is going to spend three chapters on kingdom living, and why it's brilliant... But you want to see what the kingdom is first. And that's what our passage is about this morning. What does it mean to enter the kingdom? And what are the benefits of the kingdom? So the call of the kingdom, verses 17 through 22. Jesus comes as a preacher. He declares good news that was hidden and is now made known. And what he preaches is that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Which certainly sounds like good news, doesn't it? Heaven is a great, great place, we think. 
great that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Unless, of course, you're not in the kingdom. If you're an enemy on the outside of the gates posing a threat to God's kingdom, then the kingdom of God coming near doesn't sound like good news at all. It should be terrifying. The king comes as light, and it should be terrifying, which is precisely why Jesus' first word in ministry is this. Repent! To repent means to turn around. It means to change your mind, change your direction. It means fix the mess you've made. It means recognise that you're in darkness, that you're spiritually blind, spiritually dead, facing death on your own, and turn around. That one word Jesus says, you've got it wrong. Your whole belief system, your life, it's all wrong. Turn around and follow me. I'm the light. Repent of your ignorance and your pagan living, for the kingdom of God has arrived. Of course, that's not immediately attractive to us, at least if you're a guy in the room. That's not attractive. Being told that you are wrong and you need to do a 180 turn is not attractive, is it? But that's what Jesus says. That's the content of his preaching everywhere he goes. Jesus says you are wrong. Wrong about God. Wrong about heaven and hell. Wrong about how you should live your life. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It's sometimes said that becoming a Christian is too easy. Because all you have to do is repent of living your own way. Say sorry to God. Turn and follow Christ and put your trust in him. You don't have to do very much. It sounds easy, but it is the hardest thing in the world. Because it requires us to be humble to the dust. And yet, as I stand here this morning, speaking God's words on his behalf, that is what Christ is calling you to do. Repent. Have the humility to accept that you've got God wrong and follow Christ. Christ says to everyone then, and continues to say it to everyone today, you've got it wrong, follow me. Christ is calling you to follow him. And wonderfully, our passage gives us four little illustrations of people who did follow him. And so we can, we can unpack a bit what that means to follow Jesus. I want us to notice three things very quickly as we go through this little section. The command of the call the promise of the call, and the cost of the call. Okay, The command of the call, verse 18. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. Verse 21, a little <laughs> further on. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. Here I want us to note very simply that Jesus does not invite them, persuade them, or give them much choice at all. Jesus comes and he commands them to follow. As he is commanding every one of us today to follow him. To refuse him is to reject the very words of God who has made us and owns us and will judge us for this very choice. Will you listen to Jesus? The command of the call. Uh, With the command also comes the promise of the call. Verse 19. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus calls at the church to a task. 
It's a task that he'll elaborate on in chapter 28 and, and all the way through in between. It's the task of bringing other people into the kingdom. And some of us here, perhaps even some of us who've been Christians for quite a long time, might feel that we are utterly incapable of being useful to Jesus in his kingdom task. We struggle to live for Jesus. Perhaps sometimes we don't want to live for Jesus. And we certainly find it intimidating to try and ask people to come and join us as Christians. But notice that Jesus doesn't go here to the academies in Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the professionals. He doesn't go and find the people with all the right answers. He comes instead to a little village, miles from anywhere, chooses some men of modest education and little skills that would be useful in his particular mission. Notice instead, verse 19, Jesus says these words, And I will make you fishers of men. Jesus will make them fit for task. In the case of these men, it took three years of being with Jesus constantly, seeing and hearing everything that he did, and still they would betray him. It took for Jesus to die and rise from the dead and to re-equip them with the Holy Spirit to make them able to serve him. At the book of Revelation that we're studying in our home groups, John here, called to follow Christ, wrote that book 60 years later. 60 years of discipleship for him to get to the point of writing Revelation. Jesus has to equip his people and train his people and build his people up to be fit for task. Jesus doesn't call us as people who are full of our own importance. He calls us as humble people. People who've acknowledged that we've got everything wrong. That we have nothing to bring. And he will save us. And he will meet our inadequacy with wonderful grace and he will train us to be exactly what he wants us to be in his service so there is the command of the promise uh, of the call the promise of the call and finally the cost of the call verse 20 at once they left their nets and followed him verse 22 and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him I said that earlier a christian uh, becoming a christian looks easy but isn't because we need to be humble the truth is, becoming a Christian can be very costly. If you're thinking about becoming a Christian, I'm not going to ask you for money. I don't pay me a fee to become a Christian. But you may have to pay a great cost. For these men, it cost them their security. They left the jobs that they knew how to do. They left their boats and their nets. They left their tools of their trade behind. They left their families behind in order to be retrained by Christ for the task that he had for them. And you can imagine uh, Zebedee, can't you, in his boat, as his sons are called away from him and the job they've been doing together to follow Jesus. I imagine there were some fairly heated conversations there. I imagine that Zebedee did everything he could do to persuade them to stay. Uh, Who's going to take over the family business when I'm too old? Who's going to look after the family? Boys, what are you doing? You have responsibilities here. You can imagine that. What they were doing was scandalous. And what about Peter? We know that Peter was married, because in Mark 1 we're told he has a mother-in-law. I guess you wouldn't choose a mother-in-law unless you've got a wife as well. Um, I wonder what his wife would say to his new career choice as a peripatetic preacher and follower of Jesus. I don't know, we're not told. The truth is there are some people in our congregation here today who are very familiar with the cost of following Jesus because having come to follow Christ it's put a strain on their marriage or their relationship with their parents or friends 
Uh, Following Jesus can be terribly painful in those ways, and and we mustn't minimise that. And some of us here feel it very, very keenly. Coming into the light puts us at odds with the darkness, and it will cause frictions, certainly within families, very probably within your workplace, as you seek to live for Christ in a place that's full of darkness, Because as your ethics change, as your priorities for money change, as the priorities for your career change, as the priorities for your family change, in light with the light and not the darkness, the darkness hates the light because its deeds are evil. We'll have more on that in a couple of weeks' time. When we follow Jesus, we put him first. And all those other good things, our jobs, our money, our families, are put in their proper place. Jesus here makes a radical call that changes the whole life orientation of these disciples and should change ours as well heaven is made open to us brothers and sisters in humility then we need to accept that there is a darkness that we should be running away from we should come to follow jesus in every area of our lives whatever the cost and many of us have done that if you haven't and you'd like to do that Why not grab Andy or myself after the service? We'd love to pray with you and talk to you about how you could make that first step. Please do. Jesus commands it. Let me encourage you to do it. But you might be saying, well, Ash, all you've done so far this morning is make it sound worse. You've made being a Christian sound harder than I thought it was. So what's the point? And that's our final point of this morning, the blessing of the kingdom, verses 23 to 25. See, ultimately, the great failure of the secularist agenda is this. They have nothing to say to death and life after death. They don't believe in God, in judgment, in heaven and hell, in meaning, purpose or direction for the universe. They have no sustainable ethics. I think we're beginning to see that, but it'll take some time for that to be worked out uh, in our culture. They have no answer to the questions that will gnaw away at your soul. Blaise Pascal says, you know, if you just sit in a quiet room by yourself for seven minutes with no distractions, those questions will start coming to your mind. And he's absolutely right, isn't he? The things that keep us awake in the middle of the night, the things that really trouble us about heaven and hell and life and death, the secular philosophy of our age has nothing to say, nothing to say and no comfort to bring. It is a false gospel. But if Jesus only comes with advice for living wisely in this world, if all the Sermon on the Mount is, is wisdom for this world, it's like shining a little street light into a world that's covered in darkness. Uh, wisdom for a few steps, and then darkness again. Is that all Jesus does? No, I think the light that Jesus brings is more like a blazing sun, so hot that it melts the mountain of death. Jesus comes to destroy death itself, So that you can see everything in the light. We know that Jesus destroys death by his own death and resurrection. And we'll get to that in Matthew's Gospel. But I think these last three verses here are about what it looks like for Jesus to have destroyed death. They pair with chapter 8. Why not read chapter 8 later and see just what Jesus does to destroy death. Verse 23 gives us the paradigm that Jesus follows for the rest of this section. Uh, verse 23 Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people 
And you expect Matthew to focus at this point on the preaching. That's what he's been doing throughout. Jesus has preached about the, the kingdom and repentance. You expect it to be more about preaching. After all, you get to chapter 5 and it's a long three chapters of preaching. And yet these two next verses are not about the preaching, they're about the healings. Jesus goes to the synagogues first, he calls God's people to repentance. Uh, but again, Matthew, what is so good? What's so gospel about the kingdom? Because Jesus heals every kind of sickness. Every injury, every illness is a reminder that this world is under judgment, that this world is broken, it is not the way it's meant to be, and in the end, death will visit us all. And we feel that innately, don't we? If we just pause and think about it long enough, we all feel that. That is how death casts its long shadow, in our pain and our mourning and our tears and frustrations and our desperations, our aches and our dying. The shadow of death is everywhere. But now the kingdom of heaven has broken into this world. Where the king goes, the brokenness is mended. It's as if Jesus comes and tears back the veil. He opens the window and says, that's what heaven looks like. Let me show you heaven. Let me show you the kingdom of heaven in its glory. And why is the kingdom good news? Because the shadow of death is rolled back and has no effect there. Verse 24. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed. And he healed them. I guess we can get quite blasé about this. If you've been Christians for a while, if you've been around church for a while, you can get quite blasé about the fact that Jesus can heal people. But just think about it for a moment. Jesus empties the hospitals and the hospices. Every kind of illness, from the common cold to malaria, every kind of physical injury, from stubbed toes to herniated discs, uh, Jesus drives out every kind of occult possession. He drives back the influence of the devil so that people can have clarity about the kingdom. He addresses the more long-term and chronic conditions too, like epilepsy and paralysis. Every one of those things is a reminder a symptom that we live in a fallen world, a broken world, a world that is not as it should be, a world that is shrouded by death. And Jesus comes and says, it is not the way it will be. Let me show you. My guess is that every one of us, certainly the majority of us, will know the pain of a world covered in death at the moment whether it's for ourselves personally, our immediate families, our circle of friends, there will be traumas going on at the moment as people suffer. What hope is there in that world? Here comes Jesus, the light, the king of the kingdom, the one who offers the kingdom, who calls people to repent and come into the kingdom. And what does he do? He faces down cancers and destroys them, removes HIV, deals with heart conditions and every kind of thing that takes our loved ones from us. He deals with them all. Where Jesus is, everyone is perfectly healthy. All of their medical conditions are taken away. He drives back death. Where Jesus is, there is not even a hint of the shadow of death. Where Jesus is, there is perfect eternal life. Of course, Jesus has gone back into heaven and waits for us there, and we still live in a world that is broken. But he has shone the light in the world. 
He's shown us what it's like. Notice that Jesus begins in verse 12 by himself. And yet he ends the passage with this vast crowd who've come to him from all over the Jewish world, Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, but also people are coming from all over Syria as well, the whole Roman region of Syria. It's a vast area, and people are flocking to Jesus. Why? Very probably because of his teaching, but certainly to bring the sick, because they know that's a real problem, and Jesus can deal with it. Nobody else can. Jesus drives back death, eternal, joyful, injury and illness-free life. That is what we're made for. It is, in our heart of hearts, what we long for in our weakest moments, uh, in our our self-conscious moments, when we sit in the dark room and we can't sleep. It is what we long for. And Jesus comes and gives it liberally, freely, It is the reason why Christianity will endure and secularism will die. Because in the end it has nothing to say. It has nothing to offer and no answer to the great challenges of life. But Christ, Christ comes as the king and he drives back death. And he calls every one of us here to throw off all that would would hold us in the darkness and come into the light and follow him, whatever it costs, Because we'll get life eternal. Will you be one of those people? Will you follow Jesus? Let me pray. Our loving Lord Jesus, how we have been blinded to think that this world is normal with its death and its disease and its horrors and the things that people do to each other in the darkness. We've become numb to those things and we fear to think about them because they are so overwhelming. How we delight to see that you are a king who cares for those things and has the power to deal with them. That you have made it your purpose to drive back death and all its consequences that we might have free and perfect life for eternity. I pray, uh, our loving Lord Jesus, that whatever the cost might be for us, we would cling to that hope. I pray for those here who haven't yet made that commitment, and I pray that you would uh, write onto their heart a passion to share that life with you, to give up the darkness, whatever its apparent benefits are, and come to you. And I pray that you'd make us a church that is uh, wholly sold out for you, uh, counting the cost and being willing to to suffer whatever the cost might be, to be your disciples, because being in your kingdom is so great. And we pray it for your glory. Amen. Amen. Try and avoid the cauliflower up here. Our last song uh, really is uh, a response to what we've been hearing, recognising we come as people, if we are Christians here today, those of the risen king. It's interesting that the description there of, of the king, of the kingdom, we don't say he, although it does say in many places, you know, he's the awesome king, he's the majestic king, he's all of those things, but we use that description that he's risen because it, it really encapsulates it all, doesn't it? There's no other king around who we could say is the risen king. And that's why we rejoice uh, as being part of his kingdom. Let's stand and rejoice together.